0: Many blessings in our lives and the things that you do for us. And Lord, as we come here this morning, we come to worship you, to lift you up. And as we look into your word now, I pray that you would teach us and guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated. Now, if you've been with us for the past four weeks, you know that we're in a study in the book of Joshua. And I want to go back for a moment to the very first message I brought to you in this series. And I talked to you a little bit about types, T-Y-P-E-S, and this is something that in the Old Testament you find, and it's, let me explain, to sort of set the stage. A type is an illustration in real life. Um, the nation of Israel would experience something in their life, and it has a spiritual counterpart or significance or meaning in the New Testament. Um, they would... Offer sacrifices, the sacrifices were a type of Christ, that sort of thing. And that's important because all through the book of Joshua, you find types, things that represent a spiritual truth. For example, when we are uh, in this particular area of, our, of the book of Joshua, looking at what is taking place, we talked about how that Egypt and their coming out of bondage represented salvation. They were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, just like uh, people are in slavery to sin until God saves them. And through Jesus Christ, they're brought out of that. Uh, The Israelites coming out of Egypt was a type or a picture of what salvation is. Going into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, is a type for the abundant life that a Christian is to live. A place of blessing, a place of of, uh, obedience and walking with the Lord and a place of being fruitful and that sort of thing. And in between, we find the um, wilderness wandering, where they wandered around for 40 years because they had disobeyed God and refused to go into the land the first time. And it doesn't mean that God wasn't there. I think sometimes we, as Christians, think that because um, we are disobedient and walking uh, in the wilderness, so to speak, and it doesn't seem like God is there, that somehow God abandoned us and Really, he didn't, because in this illustration, in the land of, of, uh, well, in the desert, when they were wandering, God was there the whole time. He fed them with manna every single day. He took care of their clothes so they didn't wear out, and he guided them and directed them. He was there, but it was just sheer misery, Um, just the the monotony of it and living there. And we talked at length about that. But now, see, now they are on the brink because they're getting ready now to go into the promised land. They are coming. They come up to the, uh, the east side of Jordan, and once they cross the Jordan River, they're in the land of Canaan. And they're going to do that this morning. But um, before that, God does some things with them and talks with them and shares some things with them. But they are on the verge now of coming into the promised land, and now they are getting prepared to do that. And there are going to be other wilderness experiences for Israel. They will, if you go through all through the book of Judges, they are in one wilderness experience after another, and they continually are having to repent and come back to the Lord and get their lives straightened out, and God would rescue them again. There are times in their history yet to come, centuries from now, where they will be jerked right out of the land, and God will take them into bondage, into Babylon, and, and Syria and so forth. But that's yet to come. Right now, everything is fine. Right now, they are walking with God. Right now, they are spiritually on a high. And right now, as a picture of you and me as Christians, as we make a decision to live an abundant life, to walk with God in faithfulness and in obedience and and experience the blessings of God and the fruitfulness of a Christian life and what it should be like, what God wants it to be like, we sometimes have the opinion that God saved us just so we could get to heaven. And that's certainly true in the sense that God saved us for a reason so that we could spend eternity with him. But we don't stop to realize that there's another reason and probably a more immediate reason and a more important one for us as we live here in this life. And that is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Let me read you that for a moment. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in other words, God's telling you there, there that he is bringing you to a place where you are going to be conformed to the image of his son. That is his goal. That is what he is trying to accomplish. And it all begins with salvation and doesn't, it isn't completed until the day we die when we will see him face to face and be just like him according to what John says. Now there's another verse in Philippians that I want to read to you. Paul writes this in Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, when you crossed the Red Sea, so to speak, and came out of bondage in Egypt, God began working on you. And through the wilderness experiences and whatever you've gone through in life and whatever yet lies ahead of you, God is working on you for this particular purpose, to bring you and me into conformity to his Son. That is what his goal is, Christ-likeness. Now, he refers to it as the abundant life and Christian maturity and things like that that is referred to throughout the Bible, but it's basically a picture of the Canaan. It's a picture of the Israelites going into the land of blessing. God says, that's what I want for you as a believer. And it's not where you are. This is a spiritual maturity. It is a spiritual experience that you go through in life. It's not a location. It's not a place. And this is the type, if you will, the picture of what was taking place with Israel and how it then transposes, I guess, or moves ahead and becomes a reality in our lives. Now, you have come out of Egypt, but now you have to go into the land, so to speak. And not only that, but you have to remain there. And see, for us as believers, that's the hard part. Because we struggle with this on a day-by-day basis of remaining in the land, remaining in the place of blessing. Now, nowhere in this series that we're doing on Joshua are we talking about going to heaven, okay? That happened way back there in this imagery when we crossed the Red Sea with Moses. That Jesus, Our God is saying that's the type of, of that. Everything we talk about from this point on is talking to the believer. said, please don't misunderstand something that I've said. To, to think that I am saying that you are back and forth in your salvation. That is not true. But we do go back into the wilderness from time to time. We do become disobedient and unfaithful. That's not what the normal Christian life should be, but nonetheless, we do it. And we pay the price, and we are in misery. And too many times, we, I've talked to Christians over the years that are living lives just like that. They are in misery. So here's what I want to talk to you about today. There are two questions, basically, that I'm going to answer. How do I get there? How do I get across the river? How do I get into the place where God is saying is the promised land? How do I get to this place where the abundant life is? How do I enter into that state, so to speak, of spiritual maturity and blessing? And then the second question is this. How do I stay there? Because we as Christians have to answer this, okay? I want to know how in the world I as a believer who have passed from death to life get there and stay there. Because I don't want any more wilderness experiences. I don't want to be in that condition and that sort of uh, life. Now the answer to both of those questions is the same. The way that you get there is the same way you stay there. And today I'm going to share with you three things out of this passage, this story, this event that tell you how to get there and tell you how to stay there. There's probably a lot more that goes into this that we'll go through later as we go through this this book. But uh, let me jump right in very quickly to the story. I want to jump in, share the story with you, then come out and share with you three applications to your life that will answer these questions. So here's the story. The Israelites have come to the point where they are... Uh, about to cross the Jordan River they haven't crossed yet as this story is going to share with you there's a problem physical problem the Jordan River that they have got to cross which normally wouldn't be a big deal it, this happens to be the season of rain and it is flooded and from what um, Bible scholars can assume from what is said it's probably about 100 yards wide when it's normally not that wide. And it's probably coming down from the elevation up to up where uh, the Sea of Galilee is, down to the Dead Sea. It's dropping very fast in elevation, probably perking along at about 10 miles an hour. Now, this for water, this is fast. This is treacherous and it's dangerous. And we come now to Joshua chapter 3. And let me, pull you, let me walk you through this, okay? In verses 1 through 4, it says, Early in the morning Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark, and do not go near it. Now he's saying, look, the ark and the priest are going to be ahead of you about 3,000 feet, a little over half a mile. They're going to be ahead of you. Now, why so far? Well, there are several million people, and God wants the ark out there where they can see it. Now, remember, the ark is just that. It's just a box overlaid with gold in which the uh, tablets of Moses are in there and some other things and there are rings on either side of it and a pole through it and four priests carry it everywhere it goes and there are very strict regulations on what to do and how to do that. This is where God dwells among the the nation of Israel and it later becomes the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled and so forth. Um, so this is What God tells them to do. You follow the ark. In verses 5 through 8, look at this. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. We're going to come back to that one and talk about that one in a moment, but these are the instructions. And I'm going to exalt you and lift you up today, and people are going to know that I am with you just the way that I was with Moses. Now Moses has died. And I don't know the, the timetable here. I'm going to say about a month or so earlier, maybe longer. I don't know. Moses had died. God brings them up to the border, and a lot of things are transpiring. The people don't know at this point whether Joshua is the man or not. But God says, I'm going to prove to them today that you indeed are the one that I'm working through. Now look down at verse 14. i we'll to look at 14 through 17. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, let me just put it in... Easy to understand terms here, what's going on. They're at flood stage, and God says to the priests, go down, step into the water with this ark, carrying it on your shoulders, and go do it. So they did, and as soon as they did, the Bible says that the water stopped flowing. Now, this is different than the crossing of the Red Sea. At the crossing of the Red Sea, under Moses, God parted the waters. Here, the waters are moving. And so somewhere upstream, he goes up there and basically puts his hand in the water and says, stop. And all of the water piles up in like a dammed area, and all of the water below flows away. And the Bible says they walk across on dry ground, not mud up to their knees, dry ground. And the priests find themselves standing in the middle of the, of the riverbed while all of Israel crosses over. And that is what happened until they were all over. Now, I believe that this is a wide area. They probably all came across in mass. They weren't filing through. They were just moving out and getting over. And they did that. They went across. Now, it's going to be several sermons away before we get to the Battle of Jericho, which is the first battle they're going to fight. And we'll talk about that then. A lot of things are going to take place. But I want to jump ahead for just a moment and show you a verse or two. We're going to move ahead to verse five, or chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, I want you to look at verses 11 through 12. Verse 11, it says this, that they uh, participated in Passover after they got across. says, the day after the Passover, now they're across the river now. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped. Now watch this. The manna stopped the day after. The day after they ate this food from the land, there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now think about this. For 40 years, every morning they get up and food is there. Manna is there. Not very tasty, but it sustained us and we ate it. And we learned to depend on it. But now we are in the land and now the manna stopped. And what you're going to see is this. One experience after another, God is putting them to the test. Are you going to trust me or not? And this is the, one of the, ma- the first major ways he says, okay, are you going to trust me? Because I'm taking away the manna now. And now you get to eat from the fruit of the land. Can you imagine this? Remember when they sent out the spies the first time and they came back with um, what do you call clusters of grapes that two men had to carry They were so heavy? They hadn't had grapes in 40 years. They hadn't eaten produce in 40 years. And now they are eating from the fruit of the land. And I can just imagine how excited they are. They are so excited and so happy because God has been so faithful and has brought us into this place of abundance, this place of joy, this place of fruitfulness. And God has given us victory and God has brought us through the river in a miraculous way. And I bet they're singing and dancing and rejoicing. Some of you who have experienced God's blessing, some of you who have experienced God's moving in your life, as you've made a decision to walk with Him faithfully, you know what this is like. You know what it's like to eat from the produce of Canaan. You know what it's like to walk with the Lord so closely and so intimately that you are, you just feel like you're being poured over with the Spirit of God. You know what that's like. This is the abundant life. This is spiritually what God is calling you into. To come out of the wilderness and come across into this world that I've created for you here. This place of abundance and blessing that I want you to experience here. This is what God's calling you to. But as you look at that, you have to answer these questions. How do I get there? What is it going to take for me as a Christian living in this day and age to cross into that life, that way of living? And how do I stay there? See, these are important thoughts. And like I said earlier, the answer to both of those questions are the same answers. It's the same thing. The thing that gets you there is the thing that keeps you there. I want to share with you these three things out of this text and apply them to your life. Number one, here's what it's going to take. You need to admit that you can't do it yourself. You're going to have to admit that you can't do it yourself. Too many times we as believers think, okay, God saved me, and now it's up to me to go into this land and conquer the enemy and fight the spiritual fight, put on the armor of God and fight the battle, and prove to God that I'm worthy, prove to God that I can do it, and prove to God that I'm some super Christian. And God never intended it to be that way. He really didn't. I want you to look at this because we're going back now to to pick out a couple of verses from the passages we've read. He says to the Jews or the Israelites, he says, you follow the ark into the water. When it moves, you move. And he says in verse 4, now watch, then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. He's saying, look, guys, you've never been here before. I want you to go. I want you to go there, and I want you to follow the ark because you haven't been here before and you don't know the way. I know the way. Do you know how did you know how to get across the Jordan River? I did. I had to plan. I'm the one that brought you across. Do you know how to fight the Battle of Jericho? I do. I've got the plan. I can take you there and I can give you victory. I'm the one that's going to do all of this, but you have to follow me because you don't know where to go. Now, Christian, understand this. When it comes to the Christian life, you really, and I'm speaking for myself here too, you and I really don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We fumble around for years trying to figure it out. What does God want? We get off into legalism or we just ignore it and we just do our own thing. And God has a plan, but we never, ever stop long enough to say, okay, God, I'll follow you. What do you want? Where are we going? This is what I believe that Jesus had in mind in John 15. When Jesus makes this statement, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And then in verse 5, John 15:5, he says this, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, listen to what he says. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, but let's pick it apart. Don't miss this, okay? Okay. It's God who's working in you to create within you the will or the desire to do whatever it is that God is wanting you to do. God never asked you to generate the desire. He never said to you, now you guys go out there and do your own thing and I'll critique it. He never said that. He said, what I want you to do, I'm going to create within you the desire to do. And not only that, he said, but I'm going to give you the ability to act. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you that victory. I'm going to lead you every step of the way. And this is my promise to you, he says. This is my fight. It's my battle. It's not flesh and blood. You can't do this. He said, you've got to be convinced of that. The Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts to fight the fight and accomplish what God wants us to do. The Spirit of God empowers us. Gives us the power to do things we never dreamed possible. You know yourself. You've done things in your life. You've, you've gone out and you've spoken to somebody you never thought you could speak to. You've taught a class you never thought you could teach. You've dropped old habits and done things that have changed you forever. And you thought to yourself, I never thought that could happen. But it has. God leads you. He leads you in ways that you can't imagine, through circumstances, through the Spirit of God, speaking to your spirit. God teaches you. And God goes before you and He prepares people's hearts so that they'll listen. And He prepares circumstances. And you go in and you conquer and you fight a fight, spiritually speaking, and you experience victory and you look back and you say, how did I do that? and you come to the realization that you really didn't, that only God could do it. The only thing you did was to make yourself available and to be obedient to God, and God did what God does. God brought you into a place of victory and a place of blessing. God always leads you into the promised land. Do you understand that? God always is leading you into the promised land, this abundant life. The problem lies with us. We're the ones that get fearful. You know, see, this is what God wanted to do with Israel 40 years earlier. I want to lead you into this. And they they wouldn't go. And so there was a problem. But God always leads you into this land to be victorious and to give you blessing. So that's the first thing you've got to understand. Now, here's the second. The second thing that you're going to do to get into this place and to stay there in your life, and that is this. You need to decide now whether or not you will obey. You need to decide right now whether or not you are going to obey. Now here's the reason I'm saying you have to decide now. You need to decide before you get to the water's edge what you're going to do. Don't wait till you're there because you will not go across. Let me take you back for a moment, okay, to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 16, here's what the Israelites were telling Joshua when he was telling them giving them directions. They said this in verse 16. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. It doesn't matter. Now Joshua might say to them, Okay, now wait a minute. Well, what if I ask you to do such and such? We're going to do it. What if I ask you to do this? We're going to do it whatever. It doesn't matter because we're deciding right now today that we're going to be obedient to what God wants. We're not going to wait and evaluate it and then decide whether we're going to do it. We're telling you right now we're going to do it. The priests. Now, to me, this is this is an act of faith beyond belief. And let's go back to chapter three now. Joshua three, verse eight. And he, he says this, he says, Tell the priests, God's speaking to Joshua now, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go stand in the river. Now you've got to imagine this, okay? This river is going down to a torrent here, and they are carrying a box that weighs a couple of hundred pounds probably, and you want us to go stand in there with this gold box. Yes. Do you know there's never a question, at least it's not recorded, on the part of these priests? They march right down into that water and never question. Why? Because somewhere along the line, they predetermined that whatever God asks, whatever God says, whatever God demands of us, we will do it. Because you see, 40 years earlier, their mom and dad didn't. they died in the wilderness. And these people have grown up in the wilderness. And these people are determined we're not going back there. So we're going to promise God right now that whatever you tell me to do, Lord, I'm going to do it. Because if I die, it's better than going back into the wilderness. And I'm not going to go there. So if I drown, I drown. It's okay. But Lord, I'm trusting you. And so they made a decision ahead of time that they would obey God no matter what. For you and I, I've used this illustration before. When it comes to obedience, you and I have to do this. It's like giving God a blank check. We sign the check, we hand it over, and we say, God, now you fill in the amount. What are you going to ask of me? I have no idea what you're going to ask of me. But God, you fill it in. And I promise you here today that I will do it. I will do it. To the best of my ability, I will do it. And I will die trying but I'll go, I'll do whatever you say. Because here's the problem, like I said earlier, if you and I say, tell me what you want me to do and let me decide. Who's going to step into the Jordan? If it's left up to me, I'm not going to go. I'm not stepping into that mud hole. Who's going to become a missionary? Who's going to go into ministry? Who's going to share their faith with a guy at work that doesn't know Jesus Christ? Who's going to go out and devote their time to feeding the poor? Who's going to care for somebody and sit beside their bed and hold their hand while they die? Who's going to do these things? You won't, if you don't decide beforehand, that whatever God asks, whatever God writes in the check, I'll do And see, this is a matter of not only faith, but it's a matter of obedience. It takes both of them, because I've got to believe that God is going to lead me and direct me into the promised land. And that whatever he writes on the check is something that if I obey it, I'm going to be in the promised land. And I'm going to experience him like I've never experienced him before. And so the check is there, and you and I, we well, you and I have to fill it out. We have to sign it. Because God is in the habit of not telling you ahead of time what he wants you to do. See, where's the faith? Well, God, let me, let me think about that. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to do that. You know, there's no faith involved there. But when I say to God, and this, let me just back up and say, this is what I had to do, I don't know, how 40 years ago, whenever it was. When I decided to go into ministry, boy, God worked me over. I don't want to be a preacher. But there was this desire that burns in your heart that you know this is what you have to do. And so sitting in my little apartment I basically did that. I handed God a blank check. I said, you open the doors, I'm going through. And he did, one right after the other. The money we needed, the, the paving the way going before us and, and changing people's hearts and getting jobs and getting us down there financially and every step of the way ever since God has led. But if I had not handed him over that blank check, we would still be sitting in Charlotte in misery. In the wilderness. See, it's not where you are that dictates what the wilderness is. It's the condition of your heart while you're there. Am I walking with you or am I not? It doesn't matter if you're in Texas, North Carolina, whatever. And so I want to encourage you that you hand that check over and you say to God ahead of time, I'll go stand in the river, I'll do whatever you want. This is my word to you. And I'm going to tell you something. Obedience is never easy. Obedience is never convenient. Obedience, most of the time, is not even pleasant. It really isn't. But the result is, the fruit of it is, what God does is. Someday you'll be looking back at your life and thinking to yourself, Oh God, what you've done in my life. Here's the third thing, very quickly, that you and I need to do. And that is this, that you need to clean up your life. If you're going to enter into the promised land and you're going to stay there, then you're going to have to clean up your life. And this is real important. Look at this verse. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now I want you to notice the part where he says consecrate yourselves. What in the world does that mean? Basically it means this. To define consecration would go like this. You declare or you make or declare something sacred or holy. You're making it or declaring it to be holy or sacred. Or you're dedicating something for a certain purpose. You're basically saying this that I'm consecrating my life to God's holiness to follow in the image of Christ and to walk with Him. In other words, you're getting your life cleaned up. Things that are there that are wrong, things that are sinful, things that are shameful. I am looking at these things and saying, I am in the wilderness because of these. And I'm tired of being there. And I'm not going to do it anymore. And you consecrate yourself, dedicate yourself to holiness in living life God's way. Now guys, I don't know of anybody that lives perfectly. That's not what God is asking. I don't think God expects it. But God expects us to put forth the effort to live consecrated lives. To live for Him. Listen to this verse all the way back in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 7. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Because I am the Lord your God. Consecration and holiness are basically the same thing. Now let me show you something. Throughout Scripture, now this is kind of, it's, it's an odd thing. You're going to have to pay attention here, okay? To, let me get the, hopefully I can make the point and make it clearly so that you can understand it. All throughout the Old Testament especially, and some places in the New Testament, Whenever you find this idea of consecrating yourself to God or presenting yourself to be used of Him, uh, straightening up your life, cleaning up your life, do you know what's always associated with it? This is odd. Bathing. Bathing and washing your clothes is always associated with it. It's really kind of an odd thing. Until you begin to think through why, why does God do that? Now, now watch, let me show you a couple of places. And there are many of these, but here's a couple. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 2 and 3, this goes all the way back to Jacob now. It says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Now, in this particular setting, Jacob. Is, has gathered you know, servants and so forth, and he's saying to them, look, get rid of those foreign idols. I don't want them in our midst. Get rid of them. And you need to purify yourself, which probably in this context is saying take a bath, and change your clothes. Now, what did taking a bath have to do with getting rid of the idols? Well, taking a bath was basically just an outward way of displaying what you were doing inwardly. I'm cleaning up my life and I'm going to take a bath and put on clean clothes to demonstrate outwardly what I've done. It's called ceremonial cleansing. It has nothing to do with your spiritual walk. But God is always associating the idea of getting clean when it comes to you straightening up your life. And that's all it is. Now watch this one. Exodus 19.14. This is when Moses comes down off the mountain. It says after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Always the idea, getting myself right with God, and outwardly getting clean so that it would demonstrate. Now here's what I think. I think that taking a bath wasn't a common phenomenon there. You know, uh, water was scarce, so bathing was infrequent. They wiped off, you know, and cleaned up a little bit, but that was about it. Clothes weren't that plentiful. It was hard to come by a good set of clothes. So they, they took advantage of, of, of the dirt, you know. And so I believe if, here's what's happening. God is saying, I want you to be aware of what you're doing. I want you to think about this. And when you clean up your life and make commitments to me to consecrate your life, to stop doing what you've been doing and to live your life a different way, He said, I want this to be impressed upon you. So here's what I want you to do. Go take a bath. I know that you haven't had one in a while. Go take one and clean your clothes so that you feel clean on the outside too because it's important that you understand on the inside what you're doing. You're making a commitment to walk a different way of life. Now let's jump ahead a little bit. Let's go all the way to the New Testament into the life of Christ. Now watch this, okay? Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. The night in which he would be taken, the next morning he would be crucified. This is when he had the communion service with the disciples. So they've had communion and and so forth. And uh, um, Judas has exited the building. He has gone to, to get his money and to, uh, betray Christ. And so Jesus gets up and he gets a water a basin of water, and he goes over and he starts washing the feet of the disciples. Now he comes to Peter, and Peter says, uh-uh, no way, you're not washing my feet, I ought to be washing yours, and I think Peter's thinking, you know, this is a servant's job and so forth, and, and Jesus is trying to get them to see, I want you to act like a servant, but then there's a interchange between Jesus and Peter that's left a lot of people puzzled as to what he's talking about. Jesus says to Peter, now Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus is talking spiritual things here. If I don't clean you, is basically really what he said. If I don't clean you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter's thinking washing feet. He's thinking physical cleaning here. He says, well, then if that's the case, wash me all over. Because I want to. To be with you. And then it's in that context that Jesus makes this statement. Now watch. In John 13.10. Jesus answered. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean. Though not every one of you. He was talking about Judas which was gone. But he says you guys are clean already. I made you clean. Your faith has cleansed you. He said, but down through the everyday living experiences, you got your feet dirty. You're sinning. You're not living up to what I want you to be. You've gotten off into things that are dragging you down. He said, I'm illustrating for you what it means to be clean. And even though your body is clean, your whole person is clean, he said, you got dirty feet. Now, Peter, wash your feet. Clean up your life. Guys, to you and me, God is saying, clean up your life. Here's the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises... Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. When you look back at all the things that God has done for you and all the promises that He's made for you, He brought you out of Egypt, He has blessed you, and He's placed you here in the promised land. Now, clean up your life. Some of you are struggling with addiction. Some of you are struggling with just bad habits. Some of you are into immorality. Some of you are doing things you shouldn't be doing that are shameful. And God says to you, if you want what I have got for you, if you want to be here in this promised land, if you want to experience me here, clean up your life. Guys, you want to stay in the promised land or do you want to live in the wilderness? Because the answer to both of those is, is the same answer. You can't do it yourself. You've got to realize that. You're only through You've got to trust the Lord to take you in. You have to decide ahead of time whether you're going to be obedient or not. Don't wait till it happens. Decide now. And you've got to clean up your life. you got to make some changes. And God can help you to do that too. That's the key. Those three things. That's the way into the promised land, and that's how you stay there. There will be wilderness experiences for us, just like there was for Israel. There will be those times when we choose to do it our own way and we suffer the consequences. But understand this, that is not God's fault. That is yours. Because God wants you in the promised land. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you. Father, we're thankful for the reality that Jesus Christ, died on the cross, took the penalty for all of my sins upon himself and gives to me, by faith, eternal life. And I am so thankful for that. But Father, more often than we would like to admit, we live in the wilderness, a spiritual desert. And God, I don't believe that you want us there, And I know that we don't really want to be there. That's not what you created us for. Father, may we rise above that. May we begin to put into practice the things that we've talked about today. May we realize that we can't do it. That We can only do it by trusting in you. Walking with you day by day. We can only do it by being serious about obedience making a commitment ahead of time before you ever ask anything of us that, Lord, we want this and we will obey. And, Lord, that we might clean up our lives to rid ourselves of the filth of this world. As you told Peter, you only need to wash your feet. Lord, may we do that. May we confess those sins to you and may we make commitments to walk away from those things and live life differently. In Jesus' name we pray.